All right, well, here we are in our new study through Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And the, the verses that we read together this morning are the verses that we're going to be considering today, verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. And I've entitled the message today, No Other Gospel. So just really quick, just remember um, kind of the background or introduction so Paul, having begun the letter with a brief greeting to the churches of Galatia, he jumps straight into the issues at hand, uh, pulling no punches. And as we're going to see, all through this epistle, uh, Paul hits them hard, and he does that because of the nature of their offense. And what their offense is, is a forsaking of the true gospel for a, as Paul refers to it, a perverted gospel, which he says is actually no gospel at all. And so here in Galatians, Paul is contending for the truth of the gospel, and he is rightfully and understandably intense. This is perhaps uh, Paul at his most intense uh, here in this letter to the Galatians. I mean, you can find some uh, similar kinds of things in Second uh, Corinthians and maybe a little bit in First Corinthians as well, but you, you just sense as you read through this that there's, there's just a real intensity on Paul's part. There's a real, uh, he's very impassioned uh, because, of course, the topic is the gospel. And for Paul, the gospel is everything. Now, remember, I pointed uh, this out previously, that, that what had happened is Paul had uh, brought the gospel to, these, uh, to, to this region and to these people. And uh, so these churches in Galatia were established. And, and the picture that we get that Paul even sort of you can read between the lines in the letter and you see that their initial reception of the gospel was one of absolute joy and appreciation uh, that resulted in uh, just a beautiful, beautiful experience. But then suddenly everything changed. Uh, everything changed not only among them, but what really changed was their attitude toward Paul. And they began to look at him as a sort of, a, of an adversary rather than, um, you know, who he actually was, you know, really their, their father in the faith. And, and that was all due to the influence of these false teachers. So Paul comes, he's well-received, he brings the gospel. They receive the gospel. There's rejoicing. There's joy. There's freedom. There's love. There's all those things. And then, after Paul's departure, the false teachers come in. And, but, but here's a point I want to make. Remember, the false teachers are not suggesting that the people return to, to the idols that dominated uh, their culture. Or... Are they suggesting that they engage in sexual immorality or drunkenness or theft or slander? What they're doing is they are insisting that the Galatian Christians need to become religious. And, and this is where 
we, we, sometimes we can kind of get thrown a bit of a curveball because we can oftentimes think that, well, you know, being religious is good. I mean, doesn't, want, doesn't God want us to be more religious? And, and when I use the term religious, you know, that's a kind of a big term. You can define it in a lot of different ways. But what I'm talking about is um, like what you might uh, describe as a religiosity. And that's, that's actually a word, believe it or not. Um, and, you know, religiosity means that uh, it's primarily an external thing and, and the focus is on all of uh, the external types of things that you associate with religion. And that's what uh, these false teachers are seeking to influence the Galatians toward. They're, they're basically telling them that they need to engage in meticulous legalistic practices and perform ritualistic duties. And now listen, Paul says that this is a perversion of the gospel. This is a perversion of the gospel. Listen to what he says. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. When Paul refers to this as a perversion of the gospel, literally what he's saying is, is that it is a reversal of the gospel. And what that actually means is that they are destroying the gospel. That's, that's why Paul's so intense. That's why he's so uh, deeply concerned about the situation because in doing what they're doing and suggesting that the Galatians need more than the gospel, or they need something added to the gospel, they actually destroy the gospel. You see, the gospel tells us that Jesus and his work on the cross was complete. It was absolutely thorough. And there, not only does there not need to... uh, not, not only does it not uh, need to have anything added to it, actually, you can't add anything to it. And if you try to add something to it, then you pervert it, you destroy it, you reverse its intention. And so that's the issue here. And so Paul is here in all the way through this epistle. Um, he's bringing them back to the gospel. So here we are, we're talking about the gospel Here's the first question. What is the gospel? Now, I think there's the assumption, and understandably, that we all know what the gospel is. We talk about the gospel. We use that, that uh, word frequently. Um, I, I think, of course, a lot of people, I would imagine and, and hope that, you know, many of you, most of you, that you know what we're talking about when we say the gospel. But... I think it's important that we always uh, come back and and, um, make sure we're understanding what it is, that we have the right definition. So let's do that right now. The gospel is this. The gospel is Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day, and all who put their trust in him will be forever saved. That is kind of just the the core essence of the gospel message. 
And it is the receiving of this simple message that gives us as a free gift, eternal life. And the gift of eternal life includes the process of bringing us to glory. So in other words, the gospel is, you could kind of sum it up like this. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Jesus, Jesus did everything on the cross and in his very last uh, breath, he said, it is finished, meaning it is completed. So, so the gospel, which of course, as we know, means good news. The good news is that Jesus did for us not only what we couldn't do for ourselves, but Jesus did for us everything that was needed to be done. And when we receive the gospel, we receive through the gospel, not just the immediate forgiveness of sins, not just the declaration that we are righteous now, but we also receive the guarantee of our future glory. So what Paul is, is very um, passionate to get these Galatians to, to understand once again is that not only do you not need anything else, you can't include anything else into the gospel without losing the gospel. The gospel itself is, is the, the, the full message and in the gospel is everything that we need. So as we receive the gospel, it saves us. It saves us both now and forever. And Paul says this in numerous places. Let me quote to you from Romans um, chapter eight, verses 29 and 30. He says, for whom he, foreknow, he also, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So here Paul tells us in this passage in Romans that the gospel is the full package. And those that he justified, and justification is the declaration of righteousness that a person receives when they put their faith in Christ. And whom he justifies, he also glorifies. Now, if you know anything about, you know, maybe more sort of theological terms, or if you understand um, the way certain things theologically fit together, there is something that is missing in this um, progression that Paul gives here, but it's not missing, it's actually assumed. And the thing that's just not written in is what we refer to as sanctification. Sanctification is not written in here because it's included in our justification. So Paul doesn't say uh, whom he also justified, he sanctified. He says whom he also justified, he skips all the way over to he also glorified. And he speaks of it in the past tense. Again, telling us that the gospel saves us forever. And the, the simple receiving of that gospel is the means by which God eternally secures us. So this is the gospel, and this is what Paul is set to contend for. Now, that brings us to a second point, and that is the centrality of the gospel. And 
when we say the centrality of the gospel, what we're talking about is that the gospel is the centerpiece of the whole Christian faith, that this is what the Christian faith is all about. Now, again, this is something that I think we need to reconsider because it just sometimes in our thinking and sometimes in the way we communicate, we, we sort of look at the gospel as, well, you know, the gospel's the thing that you give to unbelievers and they get saved and then you sort of move on from there. And uh, Timothy Keller in his uh, commentary on Galatians uh, called Galatians for You, he, he puts it like this. He says, it is very common in Christian circles to assume that the gospel is something mainly for non-Christians. We see it as a set of basic ABC doctrines that are the way in which someone enters the kingdom of God. We often assume that once we're converted, we don't need to hear, study, or understand the gospel. We need more advanced material. Here, Paul, here in Galatians, Paul outlines, I like the way he puts this here, the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is not only the way we enter the kingdom, it is the way to live as part of the kingdom. It is the way Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. What he says there is true. And this is what Paul said when he wrote to the church in Rome, when he said to them there, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also. Now, I pointed this out in our, our first study that Romans and Galatians have a lot of overlap. They're, they're very similar. Galatians is obviously a much shorter epistle than Romans is, uh, but yet they're, they're, they're very similar. And they are both taking us back to the centrality of the gospel. And remember how I pointed out that it was these two epistles that completely changed uh, the world, brought a revolution, a world revolution in the 16th century when it was through Romans and Galatians that this truth about the centrality of the gospel and the gospel being the free grace of God, when this was rediscovered. As I pointed out, for 1,200 years, that doctrine was in obscurity but it was there in the, the 16th century that the, the doctrine uh, was brought back into uh, prominence through the work of the reformers. And um, it, was, it was then that the, the world literally changed. Now, when Paul says to the church in Rome, now think about this. And, and I remember thinking about this myself years ago when I was teaching Romans. When Paul says to them, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. I remember thinking, now, now Paul is not talking about going out on a street corner and preaching the gospel to the pagan Romans. Although he might have done that. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not writing to pagan Romans. He's writing to Christian Romans. Why does Paul say to Christian Romans that he wants to come and preach the gospel to them? D don't we just preach the gospel to the unbelievers? See, that's where we make our mistake. No, we don't. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to realize that the gospel, in the gospel, it, it's everything that God has for us as his people. And so Paul is basically saying that he was anxious to share with them the implications of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. 
You see, when Paul says, I wanna preach the gospel to you, what he's saying is, I want you to understand the full implication of what it means that Christ died for our sins, of what it means that Christ rose from the dead, of what it means that Christ ascended into heaven. Because when we understand the full implication of those things, that is what produces our sanctification. Our sanctification meaning our maturing in Christ-likeness or our progress in holiness. You see, it's all connected back to the gospel. Christ's death, his resurrection, and ascension. And, and we find that Paul in both Galatians and especially again in Romans, not exclusively there, but, but he drills down deep in these two epistles that all of our, our lives as Christians are, are really wrapped up in and connected back to our understanding of the gospel. So I'm gonna grow as a Christian the more I understand the full implications of the gospel the more I understand the full implication of what it means that Christ died. You see, because Christ didn't only die for himself. He died for us, right? And he died for us that we who live should no longer live for ourselves. He died for us to destroy the power of sin over us so that sin no longer has dominion over us. And so since Christ died and we died with him, we need to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And you see, all of these things, are the, the these are the ways that we progress toward Christ's likeness. This is how we grow in sanctification. But you understand what I'm saying? It's all connected back to an understanding of the gospel. And, and that's the death of Christ. But then there's the resurrection of Christ. What does it mean? Well, Christ rose from the grave. And so we rise up to the newness of life because of what he did. And Christ ascended into heaven. And how does that uh, apply to me? Well, remember when Christ ascended into heaven, he sent the spirit. And the spirit is vital for me and for you, for all of us as God's people. The spirit is vital for us to, to progress. So you see, all of this stuff is related. It's all connected back. And so as we study Galatians and as we're focusing on the centrality of the gospel, it's going to result in us more thoroughly understanding our justification, how it is that we're made right with God, but it is also going to be working sanctification in us. You see, because the, the mistaken notion that sometimes people have is that, well, you know, Christ justifies me, but now I have the responsibility of, of sanctification. But no, the reality is the same grace that justified you is the grace that is going to operate in your life to bring about your sanctification. And that, that's one of the beautiful things that we're gonna see here. And that's one of the, the liberating things. You see, because this is, the, this is the heresy of the false teachers. The false teachers were saying, well, you know, it's fine that you've received Christ, but now you need more. It, it's good that you've believed in Jesus, but now you gotta do this and you gotta do that. And, and you, you've also gotta do this. And if you're not doing this, then, you know, you're, you're not really saved. And we Christians, 2,000 years later, we sometimes can fall into the same way of thinking. I had somebody recently ask a question or pose a, a, a question or a scenario 
uh, on, on the, uh, the radio program that we do, Pastor's Perspective. And they said, now, now look, you, know, you, you seem to be telling people just to trust in Jesus and, and you know, he's gonna take care of everything. But you know, that's wrong, he said. He said, you know, Jesus forgives our sins the sins that we committed up until the time that we accept him, but then, you know, once that happens, then we're responsible for the rest. And Don and I looked at each other and said, wow, we're, you know, we're, what Bible is this guy reading? And so I said, well, okay, wait a second. So Jesus, he takes care of our sins from the past, but we're responsible for the rest. What does that mean? Does that mean that everything that I did up until the moment I received Christ is forgiven, but after that, what does that mean? That either I'm not forgiven or I have to do some sort of work to guarantee that I really am saved? See, this is the kind of confusion that sometimes can exist in our own minds. And this is the kind of thing that the apostle is addressing here in Galatians. So the centrality of the gospel. But then thirdly, in our text here today, we see the gospel is unalterable. The gospel is unalterable. The gospel as it was revealed by Christ and preached by his apostles is forever fixed and cannot be changed. It cannot be changed. Now, there are those today, there always have been those, and we are reading about an example of them right here, who were seeking to alter the gospel. They were, in this case, wanting to add to the gospel. The gospel is good, but you gotta put the law of Moses together with it in order to make it complete. That's what they were essentially saying. And yet Paul insists here that the gospel is unalterable. He says in verse eight, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It is forever fixed. It cannot be altered. And Paul says that even if we, he's saying, even if I just switch gears suddenly and said, you know what? These Judaizers are right. These guys are right. Yes, we do need. Paul said, let me be accursed. But beyond that, he said, you know, even if an angel were to come and say that this gospel is not complete, you need to add this to it or that to it, Paul said, let them be accursed. And the word accursed here, the word anathema, means let them be under the divine judgment. So that's how serious this matter is. Now, some would say, wow, Paul is just over the top here with this accursed thing. What is he talking about? I mean, you know, come on. But you see, this is God's gospel. It's not man's gospel, and it's not to be tampered with. We don't, we don't have the freedom to adjust it, to fit with what we're thinking or what people are thinking around us. We, it, it is unalterable. I mean, we can try to adjust it. We can tamper with it if we want. People do that, but they're under a curse, those who do it. They're under the divine sentence if they do it, because God will not 
tolerate that. And of course, they can tamper with it, but it doesn't change the fact that it is what it is. Now, this brings us to this question, how can we recognize the true gospel? So we've seen what the gospel is. We've seen the centrality of the gospel. We've seen the fact that it is unalterable. But how do we recognize the true gospel? Well, number one, we recognize the true gospel by its substance. And this is what I mean. It is the gospel of grace, of God's free and unmerited favor. That's the gospel. It's, it's God's free gift. It's something that you cannot earn. You cannot work for it. You will never deserve it. It is, it is God's gift. And so that's how we know when a gospel is being presented, that's how we know if it's the real gospel. Is it the gospel of the free grace of God? Now, here's something that's, that's just kind of crazy. You would think that preaching God's free grace would be something that you would never really get a whole lot of pushback on. You would think that people would say, well, absolutely, right, that is God's free grace. But history proves that that is not the case. It wasn't the case in Paul's time. Paul's preaching free grace, and, and the false teachers are saying, oh, listen to Paul. Paul is saying, let us do evil that good may come. That's what he's saying. And they're intentionally twisting his words and misinterpreting because, ironically, strangely enough, man resists grace because the, great, the message of free grace is also a message of human sinfulness, <laughs> because what free grace is saying is you cannot save yourself. And human nature wants to think, well, no, I can, or at least I can contribute. I, you know, I do have some goodness in me that I can bring to the table. God says, no, there's, there's nothing there. You've got nothing. And the only way you're going to be saved is if you received this free gift. And you know, some people, they don't, they take it like a handout. I don't need a handout. I don't need a handout from God. Really? Actually, you do. You don't want to resist that handout. But, but it's, it, don't you think that's kind of ironic? I mean, it's kind of crazy that you would, like I said, you would think that people go, oh man, the grace of God, thank you, Lord, for this free gift. But, but you get all of this resistance. You get all of this opposition. And, and this is what's, what Paul's experiencing. Much of the persecution that Paul got did not come from the pagans who were involved in idolatry and all the perverted things that go along with that. Um, much, much of the resistance Paul got was from those who just would not accept that God's gift was a free gift. And that's been true historically. And you know those reformers I mentioned earlier who um, rediscovered the grace of God that was lost? Did you know that they got pushback? Did you know that they got such severe pushback that some of them were burned at the stake? And they weren't burned at the stake by the pagans in Europe. They were burned at the stake by the leaders of the institutionalized church. 
who said, no grace. We don't want to hear that message of grace. And so there, there, there's a cost, there's pushback. And, and even to this very day, when you, when you start preaching God's grace and really explaining it the way the New Testament does, you get those kinds of accusations that Paul got, like, hey, that guy over there, he's preaching, let us do evil that good may come. Hey, that guy over there is saying, we got a license to sin. Hey, that guy over there is saying, you know, you can believe in Jesus and do anything you want. All of those are twisted and, and um, false statements, but they do serve the purpose of some people. So remember the, the substance. We recognize the gospel because it is a presentation of the free grace of God. Whenever teachers start uh, exalting man, and what I mean by exalting man is, is attributing some sort of goodness in man, um, exalting man, implying that, that we can contribute anything to our salvation by our own morality, religion, philosophy, or respectability. It, whenever that happens, the gospel of grace is being reversed. It's being undone. It's being destroyed. So this is the first test. The true gospel magnifies the grace of God. Secondly, the source of the gospel. The true gospel is the gospel of the apostles of Jesus Christ. In other words, the New Testament gospel. That is to say the norm, the criterion by which all systems and opinions are to be tested is the primitive gospel, the gospel which the apostles preached and is now recorded in the New Testament. So how do I know it's a true gospel? It's the gospel that's written in the pages of the New Testament. And that's our source. Like we have already said, it's an unalterable gospel. And the Lord Jesus proclaimed it and he imparted it to his apostles and he gave them that, that inspiration to pen this and it is etched I was gonna say etched in stone, but it's etched in more than stone because stone will perish. It is imperishable. It, this, is, this is it. But, but it, we can read it in the pages of our New Testament. So any system other than or contrary to or at variance with the apostolic gospel is to be rejected. And so this is the second fundamental test. Anybody who rejects the apostolic gospel, no matter who they may be, they are themselves to be rejected. So that's how we know. We know, this, we know because of the source. It's, it's in the pages of scripture. Now, in that last portion there, I'm, I, I was actually quoting from uh, John Stott. John Stott was a, was a well-known uh, evangelical leader. He was... Um, connected his entire life to the, uh, the Church of England. Um, so what I, what I want to read, read from him here, I want you to understand that he's writing it from his, his own context as a, as a member and as a, a, a leader in the Church of England. Um, but it, it has application to us. So he says this, he says, speaking of, of you know, that person who's coming with a, a message at, at variance to the, the biblical 
uh, Revelation in the New Testament. He says, he may appear as an angel from heaven. We're not to be dazzled as many people by the person, gifts, or office of teachers in the church. He says, they come to us with great dignity, authority, and scholarship. They may be bishops or archbishops, university professors, or even the Pope himself. But if they bring a gospel other than the gospel preached by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament, they are to be rejected. Now, you see, of course, this is what happens, and this is what's happening even in our culture today. People come along, and they've got, they're, they're recognized as some sort of authority. You know, they have some credential that people look at and say, oh, wow, that guy's a, he's a university professor. He's a THD or a PhD. Or he's a, he's a person in, in, in the church, you know, his context would be bishops and archbishops. And, and, and in his personal context, and in the context of others who have more that kind of a church government or structure, you have people who are in high positions who will come and they will contradict the gospel and people will buy into it because of the position. Well, the person's a bishop and this is what they said, so they're, you know, they're probably right. Paul says, if, if an angel even came and did that, you would need to know immediately that the angel is cursed. You know, isn't it interesting that there are, um, when you think of Islam, for example, the, the, the claim for Islam is its foundation was that Muhammad was visited by an angel. And the angel told him or gave him the, the revelation that became Islam. Now, there was Christianity in the culture at the time of uh, Muhammad. His, many of his relatives were Christians. He should have known better. But we don't have to go 1,500 years back into history to find that. We can go more recently. This is what happened in uh, Palmyra, New York, with a man named Joseph Smith. He claims that an angel came. And an angel told him that all those churches out there, they're all wrong. None of them have the true gospel. I'm going to give you the true gospel. And then he supposedly gave him uh, what we know today as Mormonism. And, you know, the fact that anybody ever followed Joseph Smith is puzzling because all you had to do is read Galatians chapter one. And his claim is an angel told me this and you know, Paul says, well, even if an angel does tell you this, I doubt that an angel really did tell him, but uh, even if an angel did, Paul says, let him be accursed. And so this is where we also, we have to be careful because oftentimes it's, it's because of the, the, the perceived position of the person or their prestige or whatever it is that, that they uh, end up influencing people against the gospel. And so... Just to finish up with, with Stott's quote here, he says, so then as we hear the diverse views of men and women today, spoken, written, broadcast, telecast, uh, televised, uh, I'll throw in podcast, um, you know, these other <laughs> means of communication that we have today. He said, we must subject each of them to these two rigorous tests. Is their view consistent with Number one, the free grace of God. And number two, with the plain teaching of the New Testament. 
See, this is why it's so vital that we know our Bibles. And we cannot say enough. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Know your Bible. Because as you know the scriptures, then when those voices come along and say, no, this, you know, this is really the gospel. Immediately you're like, no, that, that, no that's not the gospel. I know what the gospel is. It's, it's forever etched in my heart and mind through my meditation on the scriptures. But even if it's not yet there etched in your heart and mind, it's written on the page, and that's what you stand with. Now, I want you to notice two final things as we close. Notice Paul asks this question. Now in verse 10, he says, For do I, do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Somehow they, they twisted everything around and they, they tried to present Paul as a man pleaser. Oh, Paul's only doing this because he's trying to please men. Well, who is he trying to please? Actually, Paul says, no, if I was a man pleaser, I would be agreeing with these guys. But the fact that I'm not agreeing with them is indicative of the fact that I'm not pleasing men. But the way Paul says it, it's interesting. He says... He says, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? And listen to what he says. For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. See, Paul was at one time living to please men. And he was pleasing men. And that brought him acceptance and prestige in his world. Paul was a very well-respected religious leader. And he was pleasing all the men around him. But he said, if I was still seeking to please men like I used to be, I could not be the servant of Christ. And for us, this is what I want to say. There are times in history when the, the, the division between faith and unbelief becomes more and more stark. And, and we're living in a time like that. We, we have moved into a time like that, where today you have people that are rejecting the gospel. But like the false teachers of Paul's day, they're claiming that their version of the gospel is the real one. That's why it's so important that we're able to test, like we looked at a moment ago. But this is my point here. Know this, that as we stand for the truth of the gospel, we will possibly be in the minority. And as a result of that, we will be found to not please men. And when you're not pleasing people, that can, that can be a little rough. You know, it's, it's not a pleasant thing, is it, to any of us to, to be uh, looked at as somebody who is just going against the flow. But, you know, sometimes that's just what God calls us to do. And in the end, we want to make sure that we're, we're pleasing God. Because never forget that God has the last word. God has the last word. You might get all of the applause of people here on earth if you... Uh, switch your allegiance over. But remember, that's not the last word. 
God has the last word. And one final thing, or let me say this, there's only one gospel, and as you stand on it and for it, this is kind of what it comes down to. People will either love you or hate you. And, and sometimes, you know, there, there are periods and seasons, and I think we've been in a long season where there's just sort of an indifference. Like, I don't care. I don't, I don't care what you think about the gospel. That's fine. You think this. You know, it's not like the live and let live mentality. But, you know, we're shifting culturally away from the live and let live mentality. Have, have you noticed that? Uh, I mean, it's, uh, the lines are being drawn in the sand. It's like, no, if you don't agree with us, if you don't believe what we believe, we're going to hate you. That's what's happening now. So it is a very real possibility that as we stand on and for the gospel, people might hate us. So we'll, we'll either be loved or hated, but let's not forget that, that Jesus experienced all of that before us. But, but let me just say this in closing, the final word here. I want you to notice something back in the sixth verse. Paul, he says, I marvel. I am amazed. I'm astounded. It's like he's saying, I can't believe this. I marvel that you are turning away so soon, listen, from him who called you. And the, the, the word there, turning away, could be translated desert. I marvel that you are deserting, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. And you see, to turn away from the gospel of Christ is to desert. It's to become a traitor. That's what it is. It is treason against the Lord. And this is what we have to remember. Ultimately, our allegiance is not merely to a doctrine or a truth, but to a person. You see, these, these doctrines that we hold dear, these truths that we cling to, they represent a person. But I want to make this distinction because when I see people that move away from the faith, I, I read an article a few years back, quite a few years ago now, but um, the article, it, you know, it was, could have been written today because more people are publicly doing this today than back when I read the article. But I remember the person saying, you know, I left evangelicalism for, you know, like a more liberal version of Christianity. And then they went on to tell their story about why they left evangelicalism. Now, you know, evangelicalism historically has been the understanding of the Christian faith that the Bible is God's word and the doctrines are true and, you know, all of that. So they were, they were basically saying in this article, I left that. And, you know, I remember reading it and I thought, well, I understand that. Because if I just had something that was a, a statement of faith, I might leave it too. But I have something more than that. I have a savior. I have a person who, who these truths are connected to. And Paul, I think, is subtly reminding them that you're not just departing from these truths. He says, you're deserting the one who called you. And this is what I want people to remember and to recognize because I see this happening today. And, and I actually have friends, people that I know who are taking sides on issues that essentially puts them in opposition to the word of God. 
And what I want them to think about is this. They're not just switching their doctrinal view. They're actually taking sides against Jesus Christ himself. That's what's happening. And so, again, our allegiance is not merely to a doctrine or a truth, but to a person, a person who endured rejection, humiliation, shame, and death for you. So when I look at people, you know, sort of taking a step away from the gospel and the things that the gospel represents, I think, have you forgotten that Jesus died for you? Are you really wanting to to stand in that camp that opposes him? Because that's really what, in the end, if you deny his word, that that's what you're doing. You could give all the lip service you want to, oh, I love Jesus, but you know, if you're denying his word, that lip service means nothing. So that, that's, that's what it comes down to. We're talking about a person. We're talking about our savior. We're talking about the one who, who died for us, who suffered and died for us. And that's, Paul understood that. And that's why he said, I cannot believe it. I am amazed that you're moving away, that you're deserting so quickly him who called you to the grace. So, May we stand firm in the gospel of God's grace and may we stand firm in our allegiance to not merely doctrine, but to the Savior who gave us the doctrine. So Lord, help us, we pray in our time to be willing to stand like Paul did And not to be so concerned about pleasing men, but to be more committed to pleasing you. Lord, how we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that in the gospel is revealed your righteousness from faith to faith. Lord, in the gospel, we learn about your great love for us and your sacrifice and your victory over sin and death and the grave and all of those things and how all of that applies to us. And, and as we understand it and embrace it, it translates into victory and glory and blessing. So Lord, may we be firmly established in the truth that there is no gospel but one, and it's your gospel that you had penned in the pages of our Bibles. We thank you, Lord, for that. We praise you today. Amen.